0: So, if you've been following along with us here the past couple weeks, um, Pastor Matt's been going through the Book of Nehemiah, and so we spent, I guess, a week on introduction, and then last week he kind of dove into chapter one. So this week, if you want to follow along, uh, we're picking up in chapter two. So it's buckle up, it's going to be a fun time. I'm going to have a ton of fun with it, so I hope you guys will laugh and have a good time with me, um, and I hope that above all that we we all get something out of this. Uh, I I certainly did when I was preparing for it. So. I hope it blesses you in the same way. So if you can, turn your Bibles to uh, Nehemiah chapter 2, and while you do that, I'm just going to pray real quick, and you know, I want to ask God to bless all of us and, and help us to, to get something from his word today. So I'm going to pray real quick, uh, and then we're going to jump in. Father, we love you. We thank you for uh, your word. We thank you that we have the book of Nehemiah here, and we pray that you would speak to us through it. Uh, we pray that, that you, would, um, you would allow us to hear something today that would leave us forever changed uh, from your word. And we pray that you'd be with all of us here this morning in this auditorium and that you would, uh, you would bless us and you would help us. And with those who are watching online, Father, we pray that you would bless them and be with them too. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so let's jump in here real quick. I'm going to read. We'll dive into some context. I got two points for you today. The good news is, is there's two points bad news is, is it should probably be six. So it's going to be dense, but I promise you it's going to be awesome. So Nehemiah chapter 2, verse 1. Now, me personally, I'm reading from the New American Standard. If that's not you, that's okay. You can still follow along. Uh, the verses will be on the screen. And it came about in the month of Nisan. Yes, Nisan. In the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, that wine was before him, and I took up the wine and gave it to the king. Now, I had not been sad in his presence, so the king said to me, why is your face sad, though you were not sick? This is nothing but sadness of heart. Then I was very much afraid. I said to the king, let the king live forever. Why should my face not be sad when the city, the place of my father's tombs, lies desolate and its gates have been consumed by fire? Then the king said to me, what would you request? So I prayed to the God of heaven and I said to the king, if it please the king and if your servant has found favor before you, send me to Judah. Judah to the city of my father's tombs that I may rebuild it. Then the king said to me, the queen sitting beside him, how long will your journey be and when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me and I gave him a definite time. And I said to the king, if it pleased the king, let letters be given me for the governors of the provinces beyond the river that they may allow me to pass through until I come to Judah. And a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates of the fortress, which is uh, by the temple, for the wall of the city and for the house to which I will go. And the king granted them to me because the good hand of God was on me. Then I came to the governors of the provinces beyond the river and gave them the king's letters. Now the king had sent me with officers of the army and horsemen, and when Sanballat and uh, the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite official heard about it, it was very displeasing to them that someone had come to seek the welfare of the sons of Israel. So that's the first ten verses. Uh, the whole of chapter two is twenty. So we're going to kind of we're going to park in these first ten for just a little bit. Um, but before we do that, I'd like to give you guys some concepts or some context and concepts. Um, how many of you know that in the Bible names are pretty significant? Like they're they're very intentional. Uh, and if you're like me, I believe that every word of the Bible is intentional, and we should really like if the author put it there, it's important for us to look at. So. Hope you guys are ready to learn some Hebrew this morning. You ready to learn some Hebrew? Okay. So Nehemiah's name is is actually two words that have been kind of meshed together. Uh, So you have the first word, Now I'm going to have you guys repeat this after me. I want to see how this goes. The first word is Naham. Can you guys say that? Naham. There we go. I love it. Uh, The second word is Yah. Now, if you you know your Old Testament, you know that uh, God's divine name in the Old Testament is Yahweh. Uh, So, Nehemiah's name is a a combination of these two words, uh, shortened form of the divine name, and Naham, which means to comfort. So, his name, and I want you guys to think about this as we read, his name means the Lord comforts. That's his name, that's what it means. And so, as we read the Bible, it's important to understand what some of these things mean. So, beyond the name, let's talk context. So, last week, we talked about um, chapter one Nehemiah you know we talked about how uh, he's a cupbearer for the king and that's his job and he makes makes a really good living the king has a lot of trust in him um, and it's a it's a very important position and so he's kind of as from a vocational perspective Nehemiah's got it made uh, you know he's making some good money he's probably got his own place to stay uh, he's in the king's good graces obviously um, and his job was to taste the king's wine and food before the king to make sure that it wasn't poisoned Great job, right? That's awesome. Um, but, you know, but for him, it's a great livelihood. So that's where he's out, And he, he comes across some, some men who were, who were exiles from Jerusalem. And they, you know, at this point in time, some of the Israelites are starting to, to go back uh, from Babylonian captivity. They were, you know, Nebuchadnezzar had come and destroyed and pillaged the city. But now that the Persians have overthrown them, they're starting to trickle back in. Okay? And so Nehemiah's like, hey, how's... Uh, how's the state of Jerusalem, how's my, how's my hometown doing, you know, and the guys that talk to him, they're like, you know, Nehemiah, it's not good, um, you know, we, we, some people are there, uh, but we're being, we're being oppressed by, uh, by people from the surrounding nations, and they come in really easy because there's no walls, uh, they've been torn down, the gates of the city have been burned, uh, you know, just, just not really good, and man, Nehemiah, that hurt, he was like, wow, you know, God's city, the city that I, um, you know, that I heard about coming up as, as the place where the messianic king would one day rule uh, is, is, is pillaged and, and burned down. It's really, you know, just a not good news for, for Nehemiah, really. And so he laments that. Um, the Bible says in, in chapter one of Nehemiah that the, the month that this happened in was, was Kislu, uh, which is a Babylonian calendar month. So they kind of You'll notice in these books, when you, when you hear, first of all, they're all weird calendar month names, okay? Uh, they're not like April or June. You, you got Kislu, you got Abib, Nisan, not like a Nissan Ultima, it's only one S. Um, so, but you have these, and these are Babylonian calendar months, okay? And so, in chapter two, where we're picking up, we have the month of Nisan, which in the Babylonian calendar is actually, it's three months after Um, Nehemiah had initially gotten the news about Jerusalem. So he's been stewing on this for about three months. Uh, This is not, this isn't something that he heard and he was kind of bummed about for like a day, you know. Like when you hear that your show has been delayed because of COVID, you're like, oh man, that stinks. I got to wait another six months for this thing to come on because they can't shoot. What a bummer, you know. First world problems. And I am that person, by the way. So I'm not hating on you. Um, but, But this is something that he had been sitting on for a long, long time. Uh, this is not a, something that was a, a quick, fettered thing. Uh, he, he's been sitting on it for a while. So, as we kind of come up on this in chapter two, once again, the month of Nisan. Now, you know, pretty much everybody in this world, they use different names for months of the calendar, but the month Nisan in the Babylonian calendar was the same month. I know this is nerdy stuff, but I promise it's applicable. Um, the month of Nisan in the Hebrew calendar was the month of Abib. Now, if you guys have read the story of the Exodus, you know that the children of Israel, you know, Passover, getting out of Egypt, all of this happened in the month of Habib. Like, so there's, you know, the author's putting this in here for a reason. Whether he wants us to see something here or if he wants us to connect these two events uh, together, uh, it's important. And so, when we're looking at this, you can see, as Nehemiah's conversating, his heart is still heavy. And with this, he either just partook in some form of Passover, which is the, the celebration they do every year to commemorate the Exodus, or he's about to celebrate it. So this is, this is something that's very much so on his mind that his, you know, just short of a millennia ago, uh, his people were freed from, from captivity and slavery of the Egyptians. So this is all stuff that's going on in his mind. And this is stuff that, you know, it, it plays into how he feels about the situation, it's important for us to get into his head space. That's what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to invite you into Nehemiah's head, if that's not weird. Um, so that's where we're at. So we're looking at these things, and there's a, of, there's a couple of things that I want to take notice of. So if you look at the screen here, my first of, ah, there we go, my first of two points is a, a pivotal place and a good hand. Now, okay, so when we're looking at this, and you might say to yourself, You're reading this, you're describing this, you're saying Hebrew words, none of this makes any sense to me. I'm fully aware that none of this is uh, profitable in a practical way. However, what's important to understand is, do y'all believe the Bible was inspired? Yes? Yes. And so, what's important to understand is, yeah, this this book may not have written be, uh, it's time for a drink of water. I figured out last, this morning, that I start to squawk a little bit when I need some water. So I'm trying to be proactive. So, the book of Nehemiah, uh, man, y'all pray for me, I'm having a hard time. The the book of Nehemiah was not written to you, it just wasn't, okay? The, the, The audience was completely different. However, the book of Nehemiah was in fact written for you. So how do we parse that, how do we interpret it? So what I wanna look at today, actually if you back that up one slide, Jose, Um, My my title for today is a a Kingdom Conscious. And so when we're looking at this text, I want you to look at it, yes, from Nehemiah's perspective, we're gonna see it through his eyes, but I want you to be able to apply this in a very 21st century way. Um, Which means that we're gonna apply this to the work of the kingdom, which is what the church does. Uh, So my first point, jumping into this, is it's, it's two things, a pivotal place, and a good hand. So we're kind of focusing in on, we're going to narrow in on verses seven through nine. And I said to the king, if it please the king, let letters be given to me for the governors of the provinces beyond the river that they may allow me to pass through. And he goes on and describes what he's asking the king for. And we find that the king gives him just abundant provision. But there's a couple things that, that we need to take, take notice of here. Let's, let's walk it back a little bit. And you'll, you, I'm kinda gonna walk it back, walk it forward, so you'll kinda, you just track with me here, okay? You gotta understand, I'm putting you into my brain space now, okay? So you got, you got Nehemiah's brain, my brain, your brain, try to make them all work. Um, so the first thing we see is that Nehemiah was afraid when he was in the king's presence. Why is that and why is that significant? Now, it's interesting, So once again, Nehemiah gets paid to give the king his food, he tastes it. Part of his job is to be happy in the king's present, pre- presence, <laughs> uh, that's part of his job is to be cheerful in the presence of King Artaxerxes. And so he goes into the king's presence and the king's like, hey, why are you sad, dude? I pay, I pay you to look happy. Like I got, I got wars, I got stuff going on, like why can't you at least walk in here and be happy, okay? And you know, so the king immediately notices this. Now there's some speculation, I'm not sure which is the case, but there's some speculation that this may have been, even though it's been three months, the first time Nehemiah was in the king's presence since he got this news. Um, or, it's just he's been sitting on it so long that he, it's, it's just kinda coming to a boil, he can't hold it in anymore. Um, both of those have, you know, valid, you know, application, but it doesn't really matter for our conversation. So, He's sad before the king, and the king's like, hey, man, what's going on? And Nehemiah's like, oh, nothing. It's all good. Everything's great. There's no problems here, you know. And, you know, we get, we get a little bit further in, and he's, you know, he's like, hey, listen, you know what? King, I got I to gotta hit you with something. You know, my, the, the city where my father's graves are, the city where, where my people come from has been burned to the ground. It's not in good shape. Um, and he says, why should my face not be sad when the city of the place of my father's tombs lies desolate and in its, gates, in its gates have been consumed with fire? And so the king says to him, what would you request? And so, first of all, this is not, like, this is a very, and that's why, you could have the point up there if you want, Jose. Um, this is why, so Nehemiah is in a very pivotal place right now. And if you're, if you're catching what I'm throwing down, like, you've been in one of these places, too, where it's kind of, It's kind of funky, you're not really sure how you should respond, but at the the same time, in this moment, Nehemiah's like, you know, this is kind of going better than what I thought, um, but I'm not really sure what to do. What does he do? And so, he was afraid, and and, and he's breaking etiquette, and he's off to a bad start. Now, for Nehemiah, this means one of two things. It means that he's going to lose his job and or get beheaded. Not a good thing. Not a good thing at all. Or it means that he may, you know, he may actually get to go back to Jerusalem, or somewhere in the middle, he may totally blow his explanation to the king, and, and that's his only shot at getting back. And he he might not do it right, so he's he's kind of batting a thousand here. He's not doing too good. And so he, you know, what is what is his response? Well, he was willing to seek divine counsel. As we read the book, uh, the king asks him a question. And he's just kind of like, ooh, I wasn't expecting that. And he has a split second to make a decision. And what does the Bible say? I prayed to the God of heaven. That was his response. And so as we're looking, as we're looking at this story, once again, there's practical application here for you. And if you've ever found yourself in a pivotal place, one of the first things that we can, you know, we can make an example out of here is like, oh, well, Nehemiah was in... Pretty rough circumstance and what he did was he sought God. He sought divine counsel to get, you know, to figure out what he was supposed to do in this situation. And how many times have we in life not done that? My hand is raised for more than I can count, where I've made absolutely foolish, needless mistakes. And if your hand's not raised, you can laugh at me if you want. But I've done plenty of it. Um, But he finds himself in this place and he seeks divine counsel. The most common mistake that Christians make in worship today is seeking an experience rather than seeking Jesus. Now, if you're here under the voice under the sound of my voice, right? We all, you know, we come here, we come in, we get our coffee, we walk in here and we're like, "Uh, eh, 68 degrees. Like it's not terrible, but could it be a little bit better. The the keyboard didn't work. Uh, you know, the screen keeps changing, you know, it you know, it's okay, the preaching's okay, I guess, but maybe, maybe we'll try another church next week, and if it's your first time here, we're, you know, we're good, you should come back next week, totally, um, <laughs> but we seek, as 21st century Americans, we seek an experience before we seek Jesus, and that's a problem, and Nehemiah was not in a camp where he decided that that was an okay thing to do. He was in a a very hairy situation and he's like, you know what, this is going to end really good or really bad, but let the chips fall where they may, I'm going to seek God. And wherever you are in your life today, whether it's with your children, whether it's with your spouse, my daughter back there, no, she's probably being bad, I'm going to pray for her. Um, you know, But where, wherever you are, whatever you're dealing with, know that sound advice that we can take from Scripture from here and from other places is that you should seek divine counsel. You should seek the wisdom of God. Proverbs says, the steps of a good man are ordered by the Lord, which means you have sought divine counsel. And so that's the first thing that we're seeing here with, with Nehemiah and how he responds. The second thing is that we see that he was willing to be vulnerable, um, if, you're like, if you know me well at all, you know that I'm not a very emotional person, at least on an exterior level. I have a really hard time just expressing myself. I'm kind of a robot sometimes. I clam up. It's bad. Um, <laughs> but enough about me. That's me being vulnerable with you. It's all I'm going to give you. Um, but, but it's listen, in a church context, okay, as the 21st century church where we're trying to We're trying to build a unified body. We're trying to be together as a church. It's important to be vulnerable. Well, you say, well, that's not in the text here. You know, it doesn't say you should be vulnerable. Well, luckily, I have another one for you. James 5.16 should be on the screen. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be what? Healed. Healed. The effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. And so what James is saying here, he's not saying confess your sins to somebody so you can have your sins forgiven. It's not what he's saying at all. What he's saying is that it's helpful to be honest with people. Listen, if we're in a community together, you gotta be honest with each other. You gotta be willing to be vulnerable because if you're not willing to get that junk out there, you're not gonna what? Oh, it's gone. You're not gonna heal, okay? There's no healing if you don't get it out, okay? And here's, here's something that I found helpful. The most, um, wrong quote, transparency is sharing where you've been and vulnerability is sharing where you are. I think a lot of us are willing to be transparent. A lot of us are like, oh yeah, when I was a teenager or when I was a young adult, wherever your age bracket falls in here, it's pretty wide. Um, whenever, you know, fill in the blank, we've all got a ton of past mistakes that we share, we laugh about, uh, some of which maybe we're not even proud of, right? But we share them because it's, it's a long time ago and we're not that person anymore, you're not. And by the way, listen, your past has no hold on you. You are not who you used to be, you're just not. And so, what, but what really matters is when you can be, when you're vulnerable with somebody, you're being honest about who you really are. You're not putting a mask on. And in the New Testament, when Jesus calls people hypocrites, that word is, is transliterated, it's hypo, Hippocrates. And what that means is mask. That's literally what the word means. Jesus is saying, you're wearing a mask. You're not being who you really are. You've got a mask on. You're, you're on the outside, you look great. You look like a, you know, you look like a million bucks on the outside. But he said, Jesus said to him, you look like a, you're a whited sepulcher, meaning you're a grave that's painted real nice. On the inside, you're full of dead man's bones. And that's applicable, on, I'm not saying if you have a hard time being honest with people that you're a grave. That's not what I'm saying at all. Please don't take it that way. But, but take, a, take a note from Scripture that, listen, it's, it's helpful to be vulnerable with people. And if you're married, it's helpful to be vulnerable with your spouse. They deserve to know who you are. Your children deserve to know who you are, the real you, not the face that you put on to come to church. Not that. And so he was willing to be vulnerable, even if that, and listen, they're high stakes, okay? Nehemiah had high, high stakes, he could have lost not only his job, but he could have lost his life for, for breaking, breaking form in front of the king, like it's a big deal. But for whatever reason, Nehemiah felt like it was needed to be vulnerable. So that's, that's his pivotal place, and I would encourage you to respond to that the same way that Nehemiah did. Second thing is that there's a, there's a good hand involved here, okay? And listen, in all of your lives, God has a sovereign hand. There is nothing that is outside of his control, and I want you to rest in that today. But we find in the chapter here that, you know, I think, and this is my personal opinion if I'm putting myself in Nehemiah's shoes, I think that he probably would have been content to just get his permission slip signed to go to Jerusalem. I do. But what happens is, is, is very different. You know, he, he shows up to Jerusalem in verse 10, and this dude has armies. He has convoys of timber ready to build, stuff that he didn't pay for. He shows up with loads, I mean, like an unimaginable amount of stuff. An unimaginable, uh, water, I need water. An unimaginable amount of God's provision, man. And this is the live stream too, I'm screwing it all up. Um, An unimaginable amount of provision shows up with Nehemiah. And and here's the thing he could have, if you're putting yourself in his shoes, he could have taken the credit for himself. He could have. Because if you read this closely, you can kind of see in his conversation with, uh, with the king, he, like, he pulls out all the cards, he's trying to play it the best way that he can to get the best outcome possible. What do, you, what do you mean when you say that? Well, for starters, his opening conversation with the king. The king's like, why are you sad? And he's like, well, the city, the place of my father's tombs is, is desolate. It's been burned down. And then he says that same phrase again, in verse five, two two places later. He's he's intentionally pulling on the heartstrings of Artaxerxes with something that he knows will will sway him in the direction of making a good decision. And what you have to understand about, not just these these Persian people, but people in the ancient Near East, uh, the, the graves of their ancestors were very precious to them. And if somebody, like if you defile that, you are man, you were messing with the wrong one. Like that's not something that you do. And so Nehemiah says this twice. He's like, "Yeah, my fa- by the way, my, you know, my, father's, uh, my father's graves are desolate, and I'm vegan, by the way. Um, you know, he hits him with these things, and you know, to, to get the best possible outcome, he plays it close to his best. He's a smart guy. Mind you, he's had three months to think about this, to think about how he's gonna go about this. And obviously this was a part of his plan. This was well planned. He might not have known that th- it was gonna happen like this the morning that this happens to him, but he knew it was gonna happen at some point and he was ready for it. But the amount of provision, okay, and this is where the rubber meets the road for me, the amount of provision that Nehemiah gets, he, he had no, there was, there was no way that he could possibly take credit for it. He might have played it smart, he might have done the, just the most legwork humanly possible to get this thing moving where it needed to go, but it, it, it ended up way better than he could have ever expected, and he knew that. What does he say? Well, the end of verse 8, and the king granted them, granted them to me because the good hand of God was on me. Now, Nehemiah is willing to recognize here, like, you know what? I'm a smart guy, and I, you know, I tried to get this outcome the best I could, but what I'm seeing with my own two eyes, I can't even believe it. There is, there is so much that God has accomplished through this that I, I can't even begin to take credit for it. And something that I think that we, we need to understand is that like, the things in our lives that go well, and again, we're Americans, we pull ourselves up by our bootstraps, we go to work, uh, you know, we put our car work jackets on, Uh, you know, we go to work, we put in a solid 12 hours or whatever you put in, and, uh, you know, we earned that. We did that. Nobody could take that away from us. I don't need you to accomplish what I want in my life. Fill in the blank. That's who we are. But that's a problem. Why, Why is that a problem? It's not who Nehemiah was. That's not who somebody who knows who their God is is. Nehemiah understood that what he had, the provision that he received was from nobody but God, not himself. Never once does he say, yeah, I kind of crushed that. I, that. That could not have gone any better. That was the best sales pitch I've ever given. But, you know, but he could have. He couldn't, he could have, but he did not. And so, when you're, when you're looking at your life, and you're, you know, and, and again, there's a lot of people out there who say, well, yeah, Jesus used to do miracles, but he don't do them like he used to. Or, you know, ah, I can't believe in Jesus because, you know, fill in the blank, I'm not seeing the supernatural thing. Look, listen, Nehemiah was, was fully aware that this could have gone south. And if you're in that position where you're, you're doubting your faith or you're doubting who God is because of what you see, it's because your motive is wrong. And you're staring something in the face like Nehemiah was where you're like, wow, this is crazy. I can't believe God did that. Except you're looking at it like, wow, I can't believe I did that. It's perspective. It's not about what God is or isn't doing anymore. It's not. But Nehemiah understood that. He understood God's good hand, and he understood that that was the reason that his, his pivot, that place where it could've gone either way, went the way that it did. What, is, what does God's provision say about Nehemiah's mission? Well, God was for it. Thereby, God was for who? Him. God was for Nehemiah because Nehemiah was in a funnel, or in the funnel of God's work, and Nehemiah knew that. Hosea on the screen, it should be uh, Romans 8.29. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And these whom he predestined, he also called, and these whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. This is going somewhere. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? Nehemiah understood. He's like, look, if I'm aligning myself with God's will, everything's going to be fine. Because God's will will be accomplished. Nehemiah, do you understand? Nehemiah understood that there was a sovereign God at work. And if he was a part of his plan, he didn't have to worry. And as the church today, God has a plan for the world. Okay, and we're gonna get into that more uh, as we segue into the next point, but, but be, put yourself in a position where you know that, that your circumstances are gonna be okay because you've aligned yourself with God's will. You have not, listen, there's two kingdoms that you can serve as a human. You can serve God's kingdom, once again, we're talking kingdom mindset, or you can serve the opposing. And I've got news for you, the opposing one, it doesn't turn out too well for them. And so it's important to align yourself with the right one. So so that's our first point. Now the next one's good, this is great, I love this. I'm getting, I don't know if I've got jitters because I drank way more coffee than I should have today or if I'm nervous or excited or a mix of all three, Um, but this is gonna be good. So my second point here is that there is a, a good work and a hostile enemy. It's up on the screen, yep, cool, sweet. So Nehemiah saw that there was a good work at hand now, that wasn't in verses one through 10, so we're kinda jumping into the next half here if you wanna read along. But basically, in a nutshell, Nehemiah, he gets to the he gets to Jerusalem, he kinda sees it, and without anybody knowing, he takes his, his donkey or horse or you know, Uber, whatever, around the gates of the city at night, and he surveys it, and he sees what's going on so he can get a good idea. Uh, it, they did have Uber, it was like, but animals. Might have been a camel, I don't know. Um, so, but, but anyway, the point is, he makes a trip around the city at night, nobody knows. He does it by himself. And he, man, he can see when he comes back that that work was important. He's like, man, listen, Jerusalem, and at this time, you have to understand, if you're familiar with the, the biblical chronology, uh, the Book of Ezra, like the temple has already been built, there are already people living in Jerusalem, uh, this is not a, an empty city with nothing going on where they're just going to slowly build the walls back up and then people come move in. No. These people are being oppressed and, and taken advantage of because their city is insecure. That's what's going on. Like, Nehemiah understood that this work was important. Now, it's 2.17. Let's read it real quick. When I said to them, you see the bad situation we are in, that Jerusalem is desolate and its gates burned by fire. Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem so that we will no longer be a reproach. He understands the severity of this. This is not a, like, this is not a nonchalant construction job for Nehemiah where he happens to be a good wall builder. Uh, he gets hired to build walls, and he gets good scale pay doing it. Like, that's, not, that's not at all what's happening. He sees the walls in disarray. He sees the city being taken advantage of, and he's moved with compassion to do something about it. Who else was, was moved with compassion in the Bible that we know about? It's Jesus. And so, he's fired up about it. He knows that it's an an important work. And once again, we're looking at this from a kingdom perspective. How can can the 21st century church gleam something from the text here? Even though it's, you know, 500 years removed from church history. So, Nehemiah had a good work. But listen to this. The church does not only have a good work, but we got the good news. Oh, man. I got, this is where it gets good. Uh, Jose, there should be Isaiah in there. How lovely on the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who announces peace and brings good news of happiness, who announces salvation and says to Zion, your God reigns. Now when Isaiah is writing this, mind you, at least 500 years before Jesus was born, he's describing what would happen in the future, the messianic king reigning in Jerusalem. So with this being in the back of Nehemiah's mind probably, because this is before his time, water break. This is, a, this is a significant city to Nehemiah. Like, this isn't just his hometown, okay? Yeah, he was burdened for his people, but he knows that the kingdom vision in Nehemiah's day had to do with Jerusalem being, being safe, being prosperous, and that is when God is going to institute his reign over all the nations from Jerusalem. So this is a big deal to him. And much like that, the church today, we, you know, we are little, little kingdoms of God all over the globe, Right? Where, where God has indwelled us and he is He is within us and we are spreading that. And that is, listen, the gospel, the gospel is a far greater, and that's, by the way, that's what gospel means. It means good news. Uh, the gospel is a far greater work than Nehemiah had. And I think that if we're serious about it, our attitude towards the gospel should be far greater than that of what Nehemiah had for the wall. And he was, he was pretty excited about that. So now, okay, so you're like, okay, I got you. I'm tracking with you. Nehemiah's building the wall. We're building the church. Jesus is coming back soon. I kind of can put those things together a little bit. So, what are, what are the mechanics of that look like? Well, let's let's keep looking. Nehemiah, verse 18. I'll read it for you. I told them. So he's he's telling his crew of dudes. You could tell them 25. I'm using the word dudes from the pulpit. Um, I told them how the hand of my God, second time that's mentioned, had been favorable to me, and also about the king's words which he had spoken to me. Then they said, "Let us arise and build." So they put their hands to the good work. So Nehemiah understood, after surveying just the severity of this work, that this is something that he could not do by himself. Now, once again, circling back around to, to what we what we talked about in the beginning, a unified church body is so important. Hebrews 10.25 says that, you know, we're not to, to, we're not to forsake the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some people is. It's just not what we're supposed to do. The church is called to fulfill the Great Commission, not by many single agents, but by one unified body. Listen, this thing of kingdom building, this thing of spreading the gospel to the entire earth, which is what Jesus' command to us was, is not something that we can do by ourselves. It's just not. And I think, once again, as Americans, we're very individualistic. Man, I'm going to hurt myself. Um, we're very individualistic by nature. Okay? We're, you know, I don't need you to accomplish what I'm going to do. I'm going to put the work in. I'm going to get it done myself. That's, that's how we are as a whole. Not everybody, but that's, that's just generally how we are. And Nehemiah would disagree with that. He would say, listen, I need these people to help me build the wall. And Jesus is saying, I need the whole church. To reach, to reach the world with the gospel, not just Pastor Matt. Pastor Matt cannot reach Middle River or the surrounding zip codes wherever y'all are from, okay, with the gospel without the help of a unified church body. And we cannot be, this is important, we cannot be a unified church body if first of all, like Paul's, or wait a minute, Paul didn't write Hebrews, I'm sorry. Um, I'm so used to attributing him to quotes. Um, but the author of Hebrews like, listen, we can't, we can't spread the kingdom we can't spread the gospel if we can't even show up to meet together, okay? And I think for a lot of us, we think that church is the be-all, end-all for our spirituality. Like, oh, yeah, I'm a Christian. I go to church. Like, that's great. But, man, that's just the beginning because we've got a ton of work to do. And that means that we're committed. That means that we're bought in. That means that, that we are con- just as concerned about the work of the gospel as Nehemiah was about his project because, we're, because Nehemiah and the church, we're both working for the kingdom. We're both doing the same thing, just in different ways. And so, and once again, kingdom mindset, that's how we're looking at this. And so, immediately, so we got a good work. There's a good work that the church is called to do. Immediately following his, his unifying speech to his crew, Nehemiah encounters a, a hostile enemy. Those frustrated that someone is seeking the good of God's people. So, Sanballat and Tobiah, these are two of the dudes dudes that are, um, you know, that are, that are giving Nehemiah a hard time. They're from surrounding countries, and I'll explain why that matters, um, and they're, you know, they show up, and they're like, oh, do you have the, you got the king's permission to do what you're doing? Do you have permission from, tell them I'll call him back, um, do you have, Permission from the king to do what you're doing, Nehemiah, showing up here with your horde of your, your armies and your wood, ready to build. Like, we don't even know who you are, bro. And, you know, they're, you know they're, they're very hostile to the work, okay? And so, but why is it significant that they're not native Israelites? And I want you to think about that, because geography in the Old and New Testament are super important. And so we got to, and I'm not going to put a map up or anything like that, but I want you to be thinking about it. And so, as we look at this, I want you to understand that much like today, we, the church has an enemy, does it not? Yes, yes we do. Um, Nehemiah, yeah he had enemies, these dudes, but can I tell you that he shared, Nehemiah shared the same enemy that we deal with today. You guys it with me? You see where I'm going with this? Because we're about to dive in, it's gonna be great. Um, so, let me put, so okay. I'm gonna give you some backstory so you understand what I'm saying. So, Genesis, everybody familiar with the book of Genesis? Yes, yes, no, maybe so? In Genesis 10, we have a record of, of 70 nations. That's, you know, this is after Noah's flood, you know, all this stuff, people, you know, population grows and we've got a list of 70 nations. And in Genesis 11, we have the Tower of Babel incident. Everybody knows what happens there, right? You know, you got all these people coming together, let us make us a name, let us build a tower that goes up to heaven. All these people are coming together. And God comes down and he says, you know what, I'm done with y'all. Okay, like this is not, like this whole humanity thing is not going great. And so I'm gonna intervene and I'm gonna do what I do and that's make things better. And so let's go to Genesis, or I'm sorry, hang on. You got it in the slides, Jose. Uh, Deuteronomy 32. When the Most High gave the nations their, when the Most High gave the nations their inheritance, when he separated the sons of man, he set the boundaries of the, of the peoples according to the number of the sons of God. Deuteronomy 32.8. For the Lord's portion is his people. Jacob is the allotment of his inheritance. So you have the, the author or the composer of Deuteronomy, you have this person drawing on this idea that the, the peoples were separated and allotted and there, there's fixed borders and that there's, there's a divine hand behind that, that God at Babel disinherited the 70 nations okay he said I'm done with y'all we're you know I'm gonna split you guys up we know that the languages were confounded we're, we're splitting it up you got your own nations and what it describes is that and this is how ancient Israelites thought okay I'm giving you now, now we're getting into a fourth brain okay ancient Israelites so this is how they thought that these other nations were under the thumb of hostile spiritual beings that's, that's what they're thinking and that's what Deuteronomy says. If you go to Hosea, uh, you go to Psalm 82, God takes his stand in his own congregation. He judges in the midst of the gods. How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked, silah? And so here we have a, we have a scene where God is meeting with other gods, which is strange, to say the least, if you're not super familiar with the Old Testament. And the conclusion that we reach is that he is judging these hostile spiritual powers for dealing with the people who are under their thumb unjustly, and he's going to deal with that in the future. Later on in Psalm 82, God says to these hostile divine beings that they will die like men. Whew, time for water. I'm starting to squawk. And so, so this, is, this is part of the worldview okay, that Nehemiah has. He understands that Israel is God's portion Israel is God's people. Um, You know, Yahweh, we talked about that in the beginning, the God of the Israelites, like this is his portion, this is his land, his people. And then everything else around that is not. It's under the domain of somebody else. And these are just a few points. There's a lot of other stuff we could dive into, but I'm not going to for the sake of time. But the, the point is that Nehemiah is looking at this from a spiritual warfare perspective. How many of you know that spiritual warfare is a very real and present thing? Yes, it is. And so, when he's looking at these people, he's not looking at two dudes that are just trying to give him a hard time, okay? is looking at, at hostile entities that want to put a stop to God's work. And what was, what was, so Genesis 11, God disinherits the nations. What happens in Genesis 12? First verse, God calls Abraham. And what does he tell Abraham? What is, what is God's promise to Abraham that through him, all the nations of the earth would be blessed? You're hearing that right. One chapter later, God's going to use Abraham as a vehicle to bless the 70 nations that were disinherited. How's he going to do that? He's going to do that through Jesus, and we're going, to find, we're, going to, we're going to get there. I'm just trying to give you guys some context here. And so he's looking at this from a spiritual warfare perspective. The church, the church and Nehemiah, we share a common enemy. We do. If that hasn't been made clear at this point, it, it gets clearer. Satan and the forces of darkness. 1 Peter 5 8. Put that up on the screen there. Be of sober spirit, be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls about or prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. 1 Peter 5 8. That's 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 one. Next one is gonna be Ephesians 2 2. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly, formerly, walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. You guys tracking with this? Spiritual warfare. Ephesians 6.12. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Ephesians 6.12. It's very clear Okay, New and Old Testament, that we have a very real, a very hostile enemy that, that only God can deal with. Okay, like that's it's made abundantly clear. And so the church in Nehemiah, here's the thing, right? We got the same enemy. Okay, we, we've tracked that down, we got that. Now, what does Nehemiah do about this? They're like day one on the job, he's got opposition. He's like, crap, I guess we've got to go home. No, that's not what he says at all, right? Verse 20, I'll read it to you. So I answered them. Or, well, I'll back it up, verse 19. But when Sanballat, the Horonite, and Tobiah, the Ammonite official, and Geshem, the Arab, heard it, they mocked us and despised us and said, what is this thing you were doing? Are you rebelling against the king? So I answered them, Nehemiah's response. This is so key. This is the hinge pin to all of it. And he said to them, the God of heaven will give us success. Therefore, we his servants will arise and build. But you have no portion, right, or memorial in Jerusalem." He roasts them. I mean, boom, roasted, they're done, okay? You know, you got a crew of guys walking up to Nehemiah, and he's like, it's great that you feel that way, it's awesome, but sorry, guess what? You got no portion here. This is, this is, this is God's land, okay? Your, your hostile forces, the hostile gods that you serve, you got no right here. This ain't your place, okay? And he tells him that, and I'm reading this, you know, and I'm like, man, Nehemiah's a confident dude. I mean, I don't know anything about Arabs, but I ain't messing with them. You know what I mean? And, you know, and so I'm like, where, where, where does Nehemiah, where's he getting this confidence from? I got it, because I got to get some of that, okay? And I started thinking about it, okay? Once again, chronology. We know that the temple is built again. The walls are not, because that's Nehemiah's job, but the temple has been rebuilt, Now, the temple has also been inaugurated, which means that God's spirit now dwells inside the temple. That's a big deal. That means his very real presence is in Israel, is in Judah, and guess what? Ain't nobody coming to destroy that, okay? And in the same way that Nehemiah gets his confidence from the spirit of God being in their midst, guess what? The spirit of God in Nehemiah's day was in a building. But in the 21st century church, He's in you, that's, you know, it's crazy stuff, okay? And just to, you know, just to, to bolster that a little bit, if, if you know anything about the Old Testament, and you, you know, you read Exodus, Leviticus, and, and you know, all these all these books that have a lot of animal sacrifices, which for us is weird, because we go to the store and buy all of our meats, so we're like, why would you kill, you know, it's, it's weird, I don't like that. And honestly, I don't like blood, at all. And this whole Christianity thing, when I, you know, Less than 10 years ago at this point, when I started getting into this, I'm like, wow, like that's a lot of blood. I don't know if I can hang with that. Like, that makes me uncomfortable. But the the all these things point to something. And so in the Old Testament, blood was never applied to people. It wasn't. That's a pagan practice. And so I I I know this is weird, but I'm going somewhere. And so it was never applied to people, with the exception of when the covenant was inaugurated with Moses. He he they sacrificed an animal and he sprinkled the people with blood. Very weird, going somewhere with it, but they, they were they were never uh, they never touched blood of animals, and in, in the New Testament we read that we're cleansed with the blood of Jesus. And I'm like, okay, hold no, that, that's not that's weird. Like I don't actually have to to do that, right? You know, but it's a but it's a picture, okay. And I think in our, in our place, we often like, oh, okay, you know, the blood of Jesus, he died for us, his blood must wash our sin away, I, I got that, that's cool, makes sense, you know, but in the Old Testament, blood was applied to one, one place, one area only, and it was applied to the sanctuary in the temple, and what that did was that, that purged the temple, that cleaned it, that purified it, so God's presence could continually dwell there, okay? And so in the New Testament, when Paul's like, hey, guess what? the blood of Jesus is applied to you. So what does that mean? That means that in times past, in Nehemiah's day, when there was a temple and they inaugurated it and they, you know, they cleaned it with the, the, the lifeblood of these animals and that's where, that's where God's spirit dwelled. That's you now. You are now the temple. You are now where the Holy Spirit chooses to make his home. Right, and so the same place that Nehemiah drew his confidence from the same place where he got his strength from the fact that god was in his midst guess what you could wake up and be like hey holy spirit what's up today what's going on you know it's good to see you today you don't have to make a, a three-day journey to jerusalem to, to see the temple because you are that okay that that's who you are you are god's dwelling place and so but we should share i don't know that, that was uh, that was free that's not in my outline um but we, we should share, okay, the same response that Nehemiah had 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 given to, to these people. And basically he says that, that you've got you got no portion, you, this is not your place, you've got no right, and you've got no memorial. This place ain't gonna remember you. And so what's interesting though, too, on the on the spiritual forces level, this this word that's translated in, in pretty much all English versions, it fits, uh, but the word that's translated to right actually should be righteousness. It's the, the Hebrew word tzedakah, more Hebrew for you. Um, but that, that everywhere else it's used means righteousness. He's telling these people, you got no righteousness. You got nothing. You got, you, you, there's literally no reason for you to even be here. Y'all might as well go home. And so how do we share that response? So Sanballat and Tobiah, weird names, had no place in Jerusalem. And guess what? The devil has no place in your life. None, none at all. And if he does, it's only because we let him in. Jose, go to, uh, and this, is, this will give you the jitters right here, okay, and this, this solidifies everything that we've said up to this point. Go to uh, Colossians two, fourteen and 15. Having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. And when he had disarmed the rulers and authorities, not human rulers and authorities, He made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through him. So when I say that the devil has no power over you, what I mean is that Jesus took care of that. When God disinherited the nations at Babel, and he said, Abraham, I'm gonna make of you a nation, and through you all of the nations of the earth are gonna be blessed, all of that comes to its head, in Jesus' death and resurrection. When he kicked open, or rolled away the stone, whatever, however he got out of the tomb, He publicly shamed the forces of darkness, okay? Like, they they have no more power. The power that they had over the nations of the world is gone. He took it from them. And so, as you go about your life, be aware that you have an enemy. But be aware that your enemy has no power over you anymore. And that was not the case for Nehemiah. Nehemiah did not have Jesus. Nehemiah did not have the resurrected Jesus that defeated death, hell, and the grave. He just didn't. But we do. And so keep that in mind from a kingdom perspective how, like, listen, we've got a good work to do. We've got some good news to spread, but we've got a real enemy. Man, it's rough. But we got this. We got Colossians 2, 14 and 15 that Jesus has literally embarrassed all of them. It's great. I don't know if y'all like that as much as I do, but I like it. And so, what time you got, Dylan? Am I doing okay? Huh? Whew, wow, I'm about four minutes after where I wanted to be. Um, but, listen, but that's just, a, that's just a skim of what's going on in the book of Nehemiah in the, in the second chapter. There's a lot going on. But from a kingdom perspective, we, we, we have to understand that you'll find yourself in pivotal situations where you may not know which direction to turn. And what's important is that you seek divine counsel. You need to pray. You need to talk to your, your friends who also have the Holy Spirit, right? Because that's, you know, God gave us the church so we can help each other, okay? So seek divine counsel. You will see God's hand at work. Now the question is whether you allow it to give you faith and confidence, like Nehemiah. He saw that and he was like, wow, God did this, that's crazy. Or you can look at it and say like, wish God would do something, I'm here doing all the heavy lifting, you know? Don't, listen, don't let those things build up your pride. Because if that's where you are, you got no chance. You got no chance against the enemy. He's gonna eat you for breakfast, okay? You will be faced with an enormously good work. That's spreading the gospel. That's, that's reaching the world with the message of Jesus. And you will encounter an enemy who seeks to destroy you and everything dear to you. So my question to you is will you put him in his place or will you allow him to come into yours? That's the only question I got today. And so as we come to a close, I want you to think about these things. I want you to think about Nehemiah 2 from a kingdom perspective. And how this applies to the 21st century church. We 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 put up a lot of a lot of scripture up there today. So if your mind is zooming a million miles a minute, that's okay. I've had a couple days to stew on this. You're, you're still fresh. All right? So but but think about that. As and as and as we close, and Jose, you can flip to the next slide if you want. Um, as we next. Okay, maybe that's the last one. Um, but as we as we come to a close this morning. And listen, if y'all need a minute, it's okay, I just, I want to give you some space, I want to give you a chance to, to respond to God's word, because we got a lot of God's word this morning, and I just want to, sorry, more water, pause, I'm going to start squawking, y'all don't want that, I start to sound like a junior higher when my voice starts to crack, just like that, um, but, but I just want to give you a minute to respond to God's word because nothing listen none of this matters none of the words that I'm saying really matter unless they they take root and they do something in your heart and my prayer is that they do this morning my prayer is that you take the message of of Nehemiah 2 and that it does something for you it does something in your heart and you know I hope it changes you forever like it changed me because it did uh, having this perspective you want to you want to come up and take over here every head bowed every eye closed every head bowed